Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In today's episode, we hear from two former members of the Irish Defence Forces who are now members of the Women of Honour group and part of the global hashtag military me Too movement. These women have been campaigning along with other serving and retired female army and navy officers, courageously detailing their accounts of workplace sexual abuse and harassment and more. As we passed each other, he dropped his hand to my vagina area and I and I let it pass because, you know, he was doing the crawl. I was doing the breaststroke. I said, OK, and he's quite tall, long reach. So I let it away, let him away with it the first time. And then when, on reverse, when we turned, he did the exact same thing, but he physically grabbed my vagina uh, on this, at this time. We'll hear more from Karina Malloy and Diane Byrne later on. But first, I just want to go through three stories about women in recent days. This first one is something that happened last Saturday. A 13-year-old boy has been identified as a person of interest by Gardaí investigating a serious attack on a woman in her 20s in Cork. The woman was followed for a period before her assailant subjected her to what Gardaí have described as a particularly nasty assault in the Evergreen Street area at about 11.30pm last Saturday. The woman was hit in the head and face and had sustained cuts and damage to her jaw. A number of people came to her assistance and her attacker then fled on foot. She was transferred to Cork University Hospital via ambulance for treatment to non-life-threatening injuries. It's understood the young woman was walking the short distance home when the attack occurred and uh, Gardaí are following a number of lines of inquiry. The woman has spoken to Gardaí about the incident and statements have also been taken from people who intervened to help her and from a number of witnesses. So that was last Saturday. And then on Monday, we had uh, news that Gardaí were continuing their search for a lone male who allegedly attacked a teenage girl as she was walking in a rural area of North Kilkenny. She was a 17-year-old girl who lives locally. She's being treated in St Luke's Hospital, Kilkenny, for minor injuries. A large Garda operation involving a Garda helicopter took place on Monday afternoon around the village of Johnstown, County Kilkenny, near where the incident occurred. The male is best described at this time as a white male in his 40s with an Irish accent, the Garda said in a statement. And then we hear of an assault on a woman in St. Stephen's Green on Tuesday and uh, apparently that assault was followed by two assaults on men as well. But the woman was in her 50s. She was in Stephen's Green at about 4.15pm on Tuesday um, and she was attacked by a man. She was badly injured and shaken by the experience and taken by ambulance to St. James's Hospital with a suspected broken nose and there was two male victims uh, which is believed to be linked to that particular attack. So here we are, uh, three women, different parts of Ireland, 
being attacked as they walked along, whether in a park or on the road or going home. And it's a bit of a reminder that in the aftermath of Ashley Murphy's murder, these attacks continue. They're every day. Um, and women obviously continue to feel vulnerable when outside just going about their business. And uh, I'd just like to say that the male violence against women that's being described as uh, random by the Gardaí, they keep saying this word random, it's kind of irritating because uh, it's not really random. There, There's very much a pattern of male violence against women. It's happening every day. Uh, it's sort of like a pandemic, I suppose. But if you called it a pandemic, you might actually have to do something serious about it. And it's not going to stop without interventions across society, across education, across workplaces, online. The whole culture needs to change. And I suppose it makes Helen McEntee's strategy uh, to deal with domestic violence and other violence against women even more urgent. But I suppose it's always been urgent. And I think what just is so shocking about this week, it's the number of, of attacks, the, the the sort of everyday nature of them. And, and then you just wonder how long more we're going to need to keep talking about this and it's just profoundly depressing. There was one slight bit of positive news being that Richie Sadler um, today announced that his next book is going to be aimed at teenage boys, helping them to discuss issues of sex, consent, relationships in a way that might actually be useful instead of the way girls and boys are being taught about these things in the predominantly religious run schools around our country. Now, back to today's episode. In Katie Hannon's brilliant documentary last year, Women of Honour, many of you will have heard, for the first time, the voices of former female members of the Irish Defence Forces describing horrific treatment from derogatory sexist comments to being passed over for promotion to bullying, sexual harassment, victim blaming and intimidation. And all of this being treated like this because they're women. And obviously, as we know, all of these things have vast and far reaching impacts and consequences, including in these cases, bulimia and self-harm and suicide attempts. Now, last week, the Women of Honour met with the Defence Minister, Simon Coveney and the Taoiseach and learned of the terms of reference of the judge-led review that has been announced into the issues arising out of the Women of Honour documentary. It was reported in the Irish Times that the Women of Honour accused Mr Coveney of an attempt at whitewashing by resisting a statutory inquiry into allegations of abuse in the military and the women have been highly critical of the Minister's decision to set up a judge-led independent review. They released a strongly worded statement. They said it was a fait accompli, the meeting that they held with Mr Coveney. They said they were not allowed to ask questions or have any input. The minister has blackguarded and disrespected us given the nature of our personal disclosures. The Women of Honour said the group appointed to investigate the allegations did not have the tools to compel witnesses or documents. Uh, they said the issues require a legal process, not a review. A one lo- year long administrative review does not have the statutory protections required for such sensitive investigations to be effective and is just kicking the can down the road of pointlessness. These women are part of the hashtag military me too movement to end the bullying, misogyny and violence within armed forces around the globe. They're whistleblowers and they're heroes. And we wanted to have some of them on to discuss their experiences of the defence forces. So we spoke to Diane Byrne and Karina Malloy, two women of honour who we should all be very grateful to for keeping up the fight to clean up the misogynistic culture that they say still pervades the defence forces in Ireland. And women still make up only 7% of the forces and they're still being subjected to discrimination of all kinds, even today. 
I began by asking the women to tell me what first drew them to a military career. I didn't come from a, a great military background, but both my grandfathers, one British and, and one Irish, they both served. My English grandfather, who I never actually met, served in Burma during the Second World War. And my Irish grandfather, who of course I did meet, served during the emergency. And then my father, um, due to work commitments, he did join the FCA and was offered a commission, but had, had to leave. And then my, um, my brother joined the Irish Army. But at that time in the late 70s, there was no sign or sound of, of um, women joining the, the Irish Army. So I actually went and did interviews for the British Army. And I was about to go on a plane and go across to do recruit training. And then I heard a rumour that they were accepting women in the Irish Army. So I thought, oh, great, that would be so much better because of where I lived. I wouldn't, I was an hour from the border. If I joined the British Army, I wasn't going to get home, but that's a long story. So luckily, I um, was successful in joining the Irish Army uh, among, along with uh, 39 other, other females in 1981. And what about you, Diane? You joined a bit later. Yes. Yeah, so um, mine goes back a little, little before that. I'm from a military family, um, all other ranks. Um, and I was in an all-girls convent school um, and I wanted to do engineering. But engineering wasn't something that was really, you know, encouraged in the, in here. So I, I decided to pursue it anyway. Went to college, got an engineering degree and an opportunity came up for graduate engineers in the Defence Forces. So I actually joined as what's called a direct entry engineer. So I didn't start off in the earlier stages. I came in with my qualifications and I was the first female um, engineer in the Corps of Engineers in what's called the Permanent Defence Forces. So I found myself more or less in a job that, you know, being from a military family, um, it was actually my brother I thought would go that road. Um, but no, I found myself in there one day and, and that's where I stayed. So two quite different ways in. And what year was that, Diane? That was in 2001. Yeah. So quite a bit after there'd been uh, women allowed into the army, Karina. But both of you, I suppose, um, even in 2001, going into an organisation that you knew before going in was hugely male dominated, where as a woman, you would be, you know, among the smaller numbers. And did just to ask you both that, did that kind of feel like something that would make you more vulnerable or would make you have a did you do you anticipate having some difficulties because of that I suppose I personally didn't even think of that because um I grew up as a tomboy being beaten up by my two elder brothers and I said that any anything that the army can throw at may I be well fit for it I didn't really I knew it at, at the tender age of 18 19 when I joined you just don't think of oh wow will I be vulnerable or how will I deal with being in the in the room was was being the only woman in the room was 45 men you know, it sounds great, but in reality, it's not so great. So, um, so no, I didn't think about it at all. I just looked forward to the challenge. And what about you, Diane, coming into the engineer, sort of the permanent defence forces in 2001? It was a little the same for me. I had already done five years of engineering um, in college and there was very few women. At times, I was the only woman there. So you kind of get conditioned to what that presents, the difficulties that presents itself with. So when I went in, I was more conscious of myself and what I brought to the table and proving myself in that regard, that there was never really a doubt in my mind of how I would be treated. This is the defence forces, its honour, its integrity. So I never questioned any of that. I more was conscious that I brought the right stuff to the table. 
Can you tell me then, Diane, what was the first inkling you got of that, that actually being um, in a minority in, a, in a, an organisation like that did have its issues and was fraught as a woman? It became very obvious very quickly. In the initial stages, um, I realised that they really didn't know what to do with me. Um, purely because they hadn't had a female doing the type of work that I was doing before. So, and it was, it was to a point nearly endearing at the start because you kind of got a kick out of it. You know, I remember at one point somebody saying we had to, we had to live um, on base. And I remember somebody, somebody saying we have to get you a room. I was like, I don't mind sharing. And they're like, uh, no, I think we'll find you a room of your own. And it was just, it was just bravado at that stage. But it became very apparent very quickly that some people had issues. You know, some people accepted you on your merits and, and you could demonstrate how good you are. And they took it at that. And other people just treated you differently, d- just took an instant dislike. And it became very obvious at that point that some people were going to be a problem. Others took a little work. You know, they took a little bit of time to persuade them to your abilities and bring them around. And that's your personality that wins through. Um, and, and the work that you do stands for yourself. And a lot of people just accepted you wore a certain rank and, and you know, you, you fulfilled that position and they followed through on that. But there were others, there were the few. And unfortunately, those few can often have the most power and the, uh, cause the most damage. Yeah. And we'll talk about that later on. I want to come back to you, Karina. 1981, um, a very different Ireland in a way. Um, and you came into the Defence Forces and with that kind of idea of being, you know, had and had the rough and tumble with your brothers. So what was the first inkling you had that perhaps actually because of uh, your anatomy, because you're a woman, you were going to be treated differently? Yeah, at first uh, entered my head when I seen how nervous the Trini NCOs were in dealing with us. They would shout. Yes, of course, they'd shout. But normally they with with the male recruits, they, they would curse a lot. And I could see that they were fumbling in their in and they're annoying. Can I curse or can't I? And they just didn't seem to to know what to do with us. They didn't know how far they could push us. They didn't know, well, can a woman carry a rifle and run at the same time? And and unfortunately, our, our, our PT gear just really didn't help. Our initial PT gear being a, a white tennis skirt, very short white tennis skirt with white frilly knickers and a white T-shirt and black boots. And being put out on parade to run around. Hang on a second. Para. Sorry, I actually <laughs> didn't know this, Karina. Maybe this is public knowledge, but I'm absolutely gasping here. Yes. Somebody in the army, I'm presuming a man, said we're going to have women. They need to have PE gear. Or is it personal training? What's it called? PT? Yeah, PT, physical training. They're going to have to have physical training gear. What are we going to get them to wear? I know a really short tennis mini skirt and frilly knickers and black boots. Somebody in the Defence Forces in Ireland in 1980 came up with that. Is that the, is that what happened? That's what happened. Yes. Yes. And we as a collective uh, platoon, we um, basically um, uh, set up a, a mutiny because after the first week of running around being, being jeered at and go- Googled at and for, Googled at and whatever, we decided as a group said, no, we're not doing this to ourselves again. So we told our, our female platoon officer that um, we're going down to Dunn's stores and we're buying tracksuits. <laughs> and what did she say? She just looked at us and, and I'm sure she was embarrassed as well. And I'm sure she was happy that we took the initiative to, to do that. So you got away with with um, the mutiny? We got away with the mutiny, yes. Yeah, 
Yeah. That probably lulled you into a false sense that you were going to be able to overcome all these things that might come at you. We won the knickers. We, we won, won the frilly the knickers, knickers yes. war. We won the frilly knickers war. But that was yes. just a battle. It wasn't the war, right? No, it wasn't the war. No, the war was yet to come. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I have to say, like, that that just makes me see you guys at, at that time. You weren't going to be sitting around thinking, oh, this is OK. We'll be sex objects running around the field while our male counterparts get to wear whatever they like you you had you had that fight in you that feistiness that just to say no that's not good enough yeah so it's not like anyone who joins the army i imagine they're not wallflowers you're not people shrinking violets who are going to be kind of not sticking up for yourself no no you couldn't be a wallflower in our platoon no absolutely not because you would get you would get walked all over yeah okay so i mean i think that's really an interesting beginning and and how did it continue then what what else happened where you started to realize Right. My experience is very different to the men's. Yeah. Well, well, our training then continued to uh, to be quite on par with, with our male counterparts because we were training side by side with other male recruit platoons. So that was good. So we did do our tactics. We did do our weapons training. We were delighted to be given because I've since discovered to my horror that we're well ahead than the British Army. The British Army didn't give weapons to women for, for years to after after us. So if you had indeed have gone down the route of the British Army, you wouldn't have been able to have guns and all of that for ages. Yeah, for ages and ages. Yeah, yeah. So so we, we got to, to do our range practice, our rifle skills and everything else. But then it came to the end. Oh, it was just so, so frustrating that we when, when you finish recruit training, you have a, a ceremony called the Passing Out Parade. And during that parade, all the men were doing fantastic arms drills with their rifles. I said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. But they decided that, uh, no, you can't because you, they were, <laughs> what it came down to was they were so afraid because we wore skirts uh, on, on parade. Our number one uniform for passing out was uh, skirts and tunic, which we were delighted to wear because we were, we are females. So we wore skirts, but they said, no, you can't do an arms drill display. You can only do a foot drill display. Because we would be afraid that when you put the weapon down on the ground and you uh, bend down snappily and pick it back up, the cocking handle may catch your skirt and you might become be in an embarrassing position. So we're only going to have the, the ladies do foot drill, even okay. though we were trained to handle the weapons. And this is a bit of a sidebar, Karina, and you might not agree with me, but I take issue with the fact of you wearing skirts at all, to be honest. Like if you're doing a job like an army job, the most practical thing to wear, I would imagine, even if you're just passing out parade, marching around would be trousers. Um, was there absolutely no uh, talk that you might get to wear exactly just a better, maybe cut uh, version of what of what the blokes were wearing? No, well, see, I disagree with you there. That was my pet hate throughout my entire army career. I insisted on wearing a skirt every chance I could get because it's because I wanted to show that I was a female. I didn't want to be dressed as a man. Yes, of course, I wore combats when I was out in the ground. Well, women or, wear trousers. Oh, we do wear trousers. They they do wear trousers now on parade. But that was just my own personal hate. You you've hit okay, on my own. Okay, and it was the point. Hate. I think I think I understand you, Karina. It was about I'm in the army, but I'm also a woman, yes. and I don't want to hide that fact. I don't want yes. to be. I'm just going to blend in with everybody else. You wanted to be a woman in the army, and that was really important. And the skirt was a very much a visual signifier of that. Yes, yes. But I can also see your point of view. Why didn't we just wear the trousers? And then do the arms display with the trousers. But um, in actual fact, that that um, 
that actually never came up. We just said, okay, right, we'll do a magnificent um, foot uh, drill display, and which we did because we had one girl who was in the skirts and she was very, very okay and in, in sorting that art first. So we did I'm an sure amazing. It was fantastic. It was amazing. But it was done to music. Um, um, thank heaven for little girls. What? Thank heaven Sorry. for little girls. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> was the men's done to macho, macho man? <laughs> no. So why was there music with the women's one? I really don't know. Oh, oh well, the, the men would have music. Yes, to be able to keep in time. But was there the a song or was it just music? Uh, I think it was just music. Yes, you're right. It was. Well, I mean, we didn't have singers. We had the army band playing. Uh, oh, so it was the tune, Thank the Heaven tune for Little Girls. It was the tune, Thank Heaven for Little Girls. And again, some man in the orchestra went, I know we'll play Thank Heaven for Little Girls because they're just little girls and they're yes. in the army. And isn't that wonderful? And they're all sugar and spice and all things nice. And they shouldn't really be there. It's a bit of a joke. We'll play this anyway, because that really signifies that, doesn't it? It demeans them. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm actually, my blood is boiling already. And this is only <laughs> the, the tip of a bloody huge iceberg. I don't know how I'm going to cope with this. But anyway, there was other things. And, and Diane, do come in, because I don't know if any of this, because it was earlier, sort of is your experience. But the things that I heard in Katie Hannon's incredible documentary, and I just think Katie and rightly won a, a Tatler Woman of the Year in Media Award last year for, for the documentary. It's just stunning. There's things like people being told they couldn't wear silky underwear because, you know, for various reasons, they had to wear cotton underwear. They couldn't wear tampons because they might get toxic shock syndrome. Uh, two women couldn't go out on the rib, uh, which is a boat, because they might get distracted by dolphins. So there are just a few things that jumped out at me from the documentary. Diane, can you talk about a bit of that? For me, uh, like I suppose mine was later on, so they'd gotten over some of that stuff, I think. But it was the, it was the, the different things, the moving goalposts, you know, um, because I was the only female on my YO's course, um, certain things would have been allowed. So I would have been building bridges and there would have been a six man lift, six man lift. But I was the only girl and I was lifting and that was fine. And then we would have been amalgamated on other courses where there was other females. So then all of a sudden I wasn't allowed to lift anything, you know, because there's other women there. Oh, we have to be very mindful. You can carry the little things. So it was the it was the one it was the changing you know, one day it was fine, next minute it wasn't fine. It was just they were still trying to figure out how to deal with it. And I do remember doing my, um, an operational firefighting course. And um, one of the other issues that I found is getting the appropriate equipment. Um, so we were to do this course and I was given a size 11 firefighting boot. Now, I'm a, a size five to six, so um, but that was the smallest that they had. And one of the things we had to do was climb um, a very tall ladder, hook our legs around and lean back so that we could prove that, you know, we didn't have that fear. But I spent most of the time trying to hook my foot around to keep the boot on because I couldn't keep it on while I was doing You're it. You're basically asked to wear clown shoes, essentially. Pretty much. Now, it, again, it was it wasn't intentional a lot of the time. It was just that they weren't set up for it. So... It just, it just. But this is two decades after they would allowed women into the army. It's not like this was new. I mean, it was new in 1981 and maybe the frilly knickers. Well, no, they can't be forgiven, but maybe that was like an aberration. But this is now 20 years after they first let women in and they're still giving you a pair of 11, size 11 boots. Mm -hmm. They just didn't have anything that fit. So there was workarounds. Um, so so it was the, it was that lack of preparation. 
you know, from a high level that, that caused a lot of the issues. But you do, you, you get on with it. And that was the difficulty. Like, what were you going to do? You either took yourself out of the equation or you found a way to work with the workarounds and get on with things. So you, you, looked, you overlooked an awful lot. You accepted an awful lot, um, especially as one person by myself. If I was going to make a big song and dance about things, well, what was that going to translate to? And you really didn't want to stand out for the wrong reasons. You know, you were already standing out on gender. You know, you were already standing out because you were a direct entry. In my case, there was a, only a small number of us. So we just want, I just wanted to blend in. I was already isolated. I was the only female. So you weren't sharing with other women. The, you know, the lads were together. They might head off together. You're trying to, you're nearly like a child, a, a younger sister trying to tag along and be part of a group. Now, the, the lads that I were, were with were fantastic, but, you know, they weren't going to go out of their way to include me. You were included when you were there, but you missed a lot. So it was That's a, a really interesting insight in, into the culture. And then, Karina, I want to talk to you about, um, we've, we've talked about some of the more, like I say, the tip of the iceberg, but let's talk about your own really quite damaging and sustained um, experience over many, many years of, of, uh, of quite, yeah, like I say, serious stuff. Um, tell us about the swimming pool incident, for example. Yeah, I was the only the only female. There, there's a course called in the army an NCO's course. It's a promotion course that you must you must do to get promoted from the rank of private to corporal. So there's no way around it, and so you you have to go and do this five months, uh, full on five months course, physically and academic. And um, so th- uh, three other girls and myself we started the prelim course, but anyway, the the other three girls they dropped off for various reasons. So. Six weeks then on, um, we went for, for a swim. We, we go for a swim every Wednesday afternoon. And um, I was, uh, you know, the only, the only female in the pool. So we, I, I could swim and I was swimming up and down a lane. And, you know, in a swimming pool, your lane, you, you share a lane. So one swims in opposite directions. As we passed each other, he dropped his hand to my vagina area. And I, and I let it pass because, you know, he was doing the crawl. I was doing the breaststroke. I said, OK, and he's quite tall, long reach. So I let it away, let him away with it the first time. And then when, on reverse, when we turned, he did the exact same thing. But he physically grabbed my vagina uh, and this, at this time. So it, uh, it wasn't a mistake. So I, I, I just immediately was, went into shock and had to get out of the pool Needless to say, being a class, a military class, you can't leave, you just can't get up and leave. So I had to stay in the pool. I didn't swim. I just moved to the other side of the pool, stayed in the pool, um, left and went, got changed, went back to the barracks and had um, then met my then boyfriend and had, had lunch with him. And he asked me what happened in the pool. This was before the days of mobile phones and internet and everything else. And so I couldn't understand how he knew what happened in the pool because I didn't even get to tell him. And he explained to me that this particular training NCO announced in, in the NCO's mess, which is a bar. And of course, this, I was going to be the first female NCO of, of the Eastern Command. So there was no other females in this mess. So he announced that, oh, I had it. I really, really enjoyed having a good group with Malloyd. Did you see, can I say the word? Did you see this, the C word on, on Malloy? Uh, we had, I had a good group and a good gawk at, at her in the pool. She looked, wow, she just looked fucking amazing in, in her swimsuit. I wouldn't mind having a go at that, you know, and words to that effect. So, oh God. So when, so, so my then boyfriend said to me, you, you have a long way to go here and you're going to get destroyed if you don't, 
stand up for yourself now and go and report it. So I did all that. You know, the, the beauty of the army is you have to put everything in writing. So I put it in writing, requested a private interview. But when I went in, I seen that there was four men I was faced with. And he says, what's your problem, Private Malloy? And as I was about to explain, he says, if it's a problem with, with what went down in the pool, um, you're, and he mentioned my then boyfriend, your boyfriend's after assaulting the NCO. And so if you decide to take this further, we will have him charged with assault. So basically I was coerced, blackmailed to drop it because I didn't want to ruin my then boyfriend's career. Because if you're charged with assault in the Defence Forces, you you lose uh, you lose promotion, you you lose overseas, you lose all benefits, and and your and the bottom line is you're fined money, but that's the least of your problems because your career is stalled. So so the only concession I got out of that meeting was that I refused to go swimming anymore. And he says, "Okay, that's fine, no problem. Don't go swimming anymore now. Get out." I'm so sorry that happened to you, Karina, and um, and that's not the end of it either in terms of what went on to happen. I want to bring Dan back in in a minute, but just it, it didn't stop there. That wasn't the last time you were kind of assaulted. No, that was one of many. I've I've had two other attempts at sexual assaults overseas. I've had, I learned a new word recently. I've had numerous, numerous uh, microaggressions <laughs> from inappropriate, uh, um, inappropriate remarks, inappropriate behaviour, inappropriate touching, just constant, constant innuendos. I've had graffiti uh, written on walls about me, uh, portraying me. They, they, they didn't seem to be able to make up their mind whether I was a slut or a lesbian. So they decided to draw uh, graphic uh, drawings to display both. They, you know, they were just, they, um, I, I had a, a really lovely birthday present given to me, a pair of sexy knickers and written in the crotch was, oh, I wish I was here. And this was in front of lots of other this, men. This was in front of all my other male colleagues that I worked with every day for day in day out for six months on that on that mission. Yeah, and and then just finally tell me about the the incident where the man broke into your room or was yes attacking yeah, you in your room. That 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 was the worst one because that um, inappropriate behaviour, the microaggressions, even started because when when you when you get ready to go on a mission um, in Ireland. You, you you do what's known as a form up. All, all the group, all the whole battalion gets together and gets all the admin sorted and you get your 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 medicals done and your your range is done. You, you, all the admin is sorted. So you so you re- you you meet all your colleagues that you're going to spend the next six months with. So we all met in a room um, in front of everyone saying, oh, wow, Corporal Malloy, you, you look fantastic. You're you, you know, in your uniform, you look so sexy. And you and and I pitied his wife because what he actually said was, "You remind me so much of your mistress." He says, "You remind me so much of your mistress. We're going to have a great time together, and I'm going to have you." Of before. my mistress, he meant. Yes, of you, my. You, you oh, reminded him of his mistress. His mistress, yes. And and we're going to have a great time together, and I'm going to have you before the six months is out. Did you ha- at that point have any instinct to go and complain and to tell somebody what had happened? No, because I wanted to get overseas. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, oh no, he's only joking. Like you see, he couldn't really be serious. He's just, he's just say a little bit of uh, what the army would call a little bit of banter, a little bit of flirting. And once I get overseas, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll find, I'll find, as you say, I'll find my tribe and I'll be protected. 
And because the sergeant that I was working with, he seemed a good guy and he says, oh, don't bother with him. Don't pay any attention. He'll be all right once he gets overseas. He's just throwing out the old ego there. I said, OK, Grant. All right. So I did talk to him about it. Just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll sort it. Okay. We'll sort it. But what happened when you were overseas? It continued and continued and continued so much that that it was mentally uh, being mentally torturing me. And so I decided I had to do what's known as break the chain of command to complain. So I went to my then adjutant and I re- and I put in a request to see my adjutant as a personal interview. And because it was a personal interview, I had no witnesses. And I explained to him what was happening. And he said he, he doesn't believe me. And he he didn't have the the I don't know the personal skills or or the gumption or uh, or whatever. Let's be blunt about it. The balls to to deal with 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 this man because all I wanted them do to do and I had to go into him three times and on the third time I said, why don't would you please just go and sit at the bar and have a chat? Don't make a big thing about it, but tell him, look, you're really uh, private lawyers or corporate lawyers really. Hurt mentally hurting here and she needs your help. She needs you to, to to stop harassing her and just leave it. Leave it. Will you just leave her alone? Like man to man, just fucking leave it alone. Let's have a pint and let's talk about this and just leave Malloy alone. But no, he wouldn't even do that. So in the end, the inevitable happened. I did say in the documentary, yes, I opened my room because you, you do open your room overseas because anything could, hap- could be happening. There could be a fire, place could be under attack. Any, anything could happen. So you open your room no matter who you think is at the far at the other side of the door. So you open your, your door. I opened the door and, and he came. He says, right, that's it, Malloy, I'm having you now. And you have just been avoiding me for too long. And let's 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 do this. And luckily he was quite drunk. So I just he got he pushed me onto the bed and was lying on top of me and opened my dressing gown and tried to tried his best to to take everything off. But luckily he was quite drunk and I got the better of him and I just left the room and I just ran. Now, I ran in the wrong direction. I ran to the Irish troops to help me. I should have ran, left and went to the Swedish guard and it would have been a whole different story. But I didn't. But hindsight is great. Isn't that terrible that you couldn't rely on the Irish uh, to help you, that you knew that you would have got better support if you'd gone to the Swedish guard? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Diane, you're listening to all this as well, and I know you've experienced your own things. And in in Katie's documentary, Yvonne O'Rourke, you know, Colette McBaron, there's so many stories Um as disturbing and if not more, just even just so disturbing, like Karina has has recounted. 
and um, there's been you know bullying, sexual harassment, sexual assault. There then there are effects of that, which I know Karina experienced. Um, people losing weight because of stress, bulimia, self harm, suicide attempts, all of that. Uh, those very deep impacts of these kind of things. Can you talk to me about how Women of Honor uh, came together and the groups that came together and why that has been hopefully potentially game changing in terms of the culture in the defence forces? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Women of Honour is something that's been kind of slowly forming for quite some time. Formed um, the foundations were out of friendships and mutual support. Um, unfortunately, we have we have women within within the group that weren't uh, featured in the documentary that have suffered, you know, the same and much worse. So there's a lot more people besides um, the, the the documentary was a token of of the, the people out there and a very small token at that. Um, so there was various different things. Unfortunately, as you go through, a lot of the issues are the exclusion and the isolation. So the nature of it is to keep people apart. So it's not that you could just come together as a group because you didn't know other people were suffering. That was a huge part of it. It's only um, kind of in recent times that I've realised that people I knew through my career that I thought had a glorious career. I'm one of the golden girls, you know, were actually struggling hugely, but we just all kept it to ourselves because that was the nature of it. The support wasn't there. You weren't allowed to be vulnerable like that. So as we, we've we kind of gradually realised that there's a number of people struggling like this, we, we were supporting each other. And um, the Women of Honour um, kind of fell out of that nearly. Um, and we decided that, look, we, whether we could change anything, we're not sure. But it was all about support and all about standing up for ourselves. And that's where the documentary was born. So it's it's been a very slow burning process for a long, long time. And the one thing that, that has to be noted is that each person, now there are men and women, we've formed together as a group of women to support each other. But we have a lot of men who stand beside us who have struggled as well. But we, we're we just doing this to support each other. That's the crux of, of the whole point of all this. And in some respects, what happened after the documentary took us by surprise because we have all fought individually over the years. I know I fought mine for, for many, many years. I know Yvonne has fought hers for many years. We've tried every possible angle that we can get some change to be brought forward. Um, and it's been, you know, not very satisfying um, in a lot of it, because at, at every level, people know what we're talking about. We've explained our situations. We know there's other people and it doesn't change. And that's why, you know, we're where we are now saying absolutely not. This this can't be covered up again. And we should mention Tom Conan, who did research 20 years ago into all of this and, and came out with all the very much a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. But it kind of nothing really happened with that. Would that be fair to say or? It was acknowledged, but not really taken. No, no action was taken or some action. But it only seems to be that when in Casey Hannon's documentary, we heard your voices for the first time. You know, we actually heard the women speaking. That seems to have had a huge impact, Dan. And and you say you're surprised. But tell me what's happened since and, and what impact it had. Well, it's had a, it's had a huge impact on um, on ourselves, first of all, because now we feel we've got a voice that we never felt we had before. Um, we're, we feel we're we're being listened to on a, on a broader scale, as well as that. There's a lot of people coming forward that never came forward before. So we've had a huge number of people reach out because a lot of the issue is where do you reach to? 
you know, that you will really be heard and you will really be listened to. And that was always an issue over the years because you might reach one person and they might say, I really want to help you, but there's nothing I can do because it's this massive organization. So the support and having that central point to come has been huge too. Um, we've been in with um, Simon Coveney a, couple, a few times and we've met with his officials and we've met with the Taoiseach and, and, and getting that level of traction nearly. It's like the stars have aligned finally, because I can assure you that individually, um, individual women have reached out to Simon Coveney individually himself and they didn't get anywhere. So the best way to describe it is there's a sense of stars aligning, you know, and there, there's there's an appetite for change. Um, not just for what's happening in the defence forces, but for what's happening in the country. But you did have a meeting, um, Karina, you were there, you went to see Coveney and the Taoiseach. It wasn't very satisfactory. Um, tell us what you were hoping for and what actually transpired. The meeting with the Taoiseach, we were hoping that that he he would uh, change change his mind and go ahead and allow the statutory inquiry to to, to come about. Um, but of course, he wasn't going to go against against his minister, and um, which was fair enough. But we felt that we we were heard. But he did say that um, he 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 that he we our conflict of interest was that the um, the review wouldn't be independent enough because the Department of Defence wrote the terms of reference themselves. So technically, it's the department investigating himself themselves. But he said that he he does not doubt the independence of the review members, and that um, that we may have dismissed the review too quickly, and that he thinks it would be of of great value, and to please um, re, re, reconsider our position in in not um, um, being involved in in the in the review. And that he felt that he like like the minister constantly saying, "Oh, we have a duty of care now to this to the six hundred serving females." But as we said, well, first of all, there's another eight thousand men to be taken care of. But why haven't you been taking care of them for the last twenty five years? As since you said, you know, Tom Clunan's um, re- report, why haven't you been taking care of them since then? And why haven't you been taking care of? of everybody since uh, all the protective disclosures have gone in because the general secretary did did admit that when she joined as secretary of defense that she noticed that the department of defense has the highest protective disclosures than all of the departments put together you put one in yourself karina and nothing was done well what i did the only satisfaction i did get from that was um first of all the minister, I did get one interview, but not with the minister, it was with a, a civil servant. But they just listened and said, no, we're sorry, we can't do anything because on your protective disclosure, there are criminal uh, cases. So the minister is going to send your protective disclosure to the guards. So the only satisfaction I got from that was I did get a letter from the chief of staff's office. Of course, he didn't sign it. But the sentence that really uh, stands out for me is that it, this is a letter from the Chief of Staff's office posted directly to me. Um, and one sentence was, your detailed correspondence outlines serious matters that point to significant failings within the organisation during your service. And that was dated the 9th of July 2020. And was that something for you? Was that a moment for you? That was a moment for me. 
But unfortunately, it's still it's still continuing. Diane, talk to me about that, because at the end of Katie Hannon's documentary, she was talking when she when it was replayed for the second time, she talked about some things that had happened, some positive things. The fact that, you know, you'd been able to meet with Simon Coveney and that there'd been a kind of an apology for the for the fact that you'd suffered during the Defence Forces. And it, she also said that um, that Women of Honour are going to be working with the Department of Defence to agree the terms of reference of the investigation. But when you went to see Coveney then, it was a case that suddenly the terms of reference were agreed and you hadn't been part of it. So was that disappointing? Extremely. Um, we had been advised from the very start um, and we did feel that, you know, the, the earlier meetings were productive um, and we were advised that we would be considered stakeholders and that we would be heavily involved because we were very passionate and we were very clear in what we felt the issues were and what needed to be done here. But it became apparent um, through our conversations that we weren't really being heard um, whilst they were listening to what we were saying, um, it wasn't transpiring into anything. So eventually we were presented with a terms of reference and that set a massive alarm bells off in our head because we were looking at these going, I don't know how you got from what we're talking about to these. And that was a huge uh, concern for us. So we raised those concerns. We met with um, Simon Coveney before Christmas. And when we mentioned these things, um, he said he would reconsider he went away again because at this stage we had absolutely not accepted blanketly the terms of reference that were there or the mechanism that was being put forward. So what we had done at that point is we were told he would reconsider and he would come back. And when we did go in to meet him um, again late in January, um, we were presented with um, a set of terms of reference that had confidential final written all over them. The, in, the panel had been um, put in place the mechanism had been put in place and we it was all done before we got into the room. It was all signed, sealed and delivered. And we've been very, very clear on our issues um, and the concerns that we have, but they have been dismissed in their entirety. It might okay, which is which is basically what you feel has been happening for decades. And it still seems to be happening even at the very, very highest levels, even by people who now say they're listening to you, but by their actions don't seem to be doing that. So. Will you tell us what you want? I mean, this judge-led review that has been announced that you don't feel is going to be properly independent. What do you want to happen now? So really, really what we want now is what we've always said is needed. Um, the the independent review that's proposing, first of all, it's important to say that this is no reflection on the people on the panel that they've appointed. I have no idea who these people are and it's not a reflection on them. But if they are not given the appropriate powers to do their job and the tools in which to do them, which is a which are the terms of reference, well, then I don't see that they can actually do this. And we honestly do not believe that this will achieve anything. And for this, we can't stand beside in good conscience and put victims through this type of review process that's going to achieve nothing. People have been hurt so many times before. And that's why. It's, it's, it, the way I explain it um, is a little bit uh, prob- probably just to simplify it for people because there's a lot of there's a lot of politics here at play and a lot of different things. So the way I explain it is it's it's like having um, a chronic illness and you go to a doctor and when you go into that doctor, you not telling the doctor everything. You're only telling him what you want him to hear, the little bits that you're prepared to hear. You don't really want the truth. You don't really want to know what's wrong with you. So you go in and you give a little bit of information and he doesn't have the diagnostic tools or a clue where to go and get these diagnostic tools because he doesn't know exactly what's wrong. But yet you say he's going to come out and tell me I'm grand or I'm going to tell me exactly what's wrong. We're not giving them the appropriate powers 
to compel people. The way the terms of reference are worded and they're, and they're published now, it's we invite views and we invite experiences and we invite people to come and talk to us. But people aren't going to come and talk, whether it's victims who are too traumatised to bring their information forward and expecting them to do it is re-victimising the victims again, making them go through what they have suffered. But then there is nothing to compel the other side of that story and what happened. And there's a lot of talk of policies and procedures and systems but it's the people that cause the problem and the, the common issues that we've all suffered, whether it was vicious, horrific rapes or whether it was discrimination, equality issues, whatever it was, no matter how big or small, is how you were treated afterwards. And I don't see how that comes across in policies and procedures. It's something that really needs to be investigated. And without compelling people to come forward and say what they did and how they behaved and to demonstrate they're a part of it, the policies and procedures aren't going to show it. So that's a huge part of the issue, as well as that we need the whole system investigated, not just the defence forces. Um, so we believe there's it, 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 there's a lot of different aspects to this. You've got the ombudsman, you've got the Department of Defence, you've got the judicial system, military judicial system, because they have their own laws, their own rules. Everything is inside of the chain of command and we need it brought out of that. So you need just to fully investigate. We have never asked anyone to believe us. We are just asking them to investigate it for themselves. But even when you look at the terms of reference, it says the review group may meet with other people, but they have to be fully respectful and acknowledge their independence. Well, really, we need to investigate how independent that is. This is not about somebody's integrity. It needs to be taken way away from that because integrity has failed us. Expecting integrity and honour to, to do justice to people has failed us countless times before. So we have to take the people their honour out of it and really check what's actually happening. So for us, I just don't see how a review that does not have those powers and has this flawed sense of of tools, the rules that, that they're to, to guide them under, how that will ever get to where we need to get to makes no sense to me. So women of honour are not going to kind of cooperate with this? No, um, like we just, we, we really want change and we really would love to be able to, but we do not believe in it. So we would be truly unfair to ourselves and everybody else that we're going to put through this. There is no way for any victim in this to share their story and for anything to come of it other than torturing themselves to share their story. And it even says so in the terms of reference. It's all about noting that there will be no assessments provided, no recommendations, no conclusions, no liability of wrongdoing. What's the point if people coming forward, if there's no results? And Diana, just briefly, I hadn't asked you about the worst things that happened to you. So from your experience, um, what was your uh, particularly worst bit? Um, well, there, there was a lot of things over the years. And, you know, I've definitely suffered the the various um, assaults and I suppose indiscretions that people have, uh, you know, kind of bestowed upon me, if you like, when they decided uh, they were in the mood for whatever reason. But the biggest issue for me was, like I say, it was a sustained bullying. It was constant. It was isolation, exclusion and it was very difficult for a lot of years, um, but really I'd had enough when I was pregnant and I went on maternity leave and that started kind of um, a series of events that was just enough for me. I was moved while I was on maternity leave. I wasn't told. While I was out, my classmates were interviewed and promoted and I didn't even get told there was interviews. And there was only five of us. So, you know, it's not like there was 30 people and they oops, forgot somebody wasn't there. There was only five, four male, one female. 
while I was on maternity leave, they were promoted. And I raised my dissatisfaction with the manner in which I had been treated. And that resulted at one point in me being left in a room with no computer, no phone, no work in a place that I had in effect ran previous to my maternity leave. And it was all just to get me to, you know, put up and shut up. And ultimately, um, it just it was affecting my health. It was affecting my son's health. And it was enough was enough. And I felt I had absolutely no choice but to leave. Um, yeah, Karina, back to you. You're obviously as dissatisfied as Diane with, with what's gone on um, and disappointing after all these years of, of trying to, to make change happen. Do you think there will be hope? Do you think there might be a statutory inquiry? Uh, the Taoiseach has mentioned that possibility in the future, but I suppose that's not necessarily good enough for you. You need that action now. Well, yes, we we, we would have. Uh, there was at one time a mention of a twin track uh, system going on to have the review and look at the procedures and the policies and have the statutory inquiry going on at the same time. But um, that was dismissed uh, within the meeting with the Taoiseach. So unfortunately, they're going ahead just with with the review board. Um, he he did he did say the Taoiseach did say that don't rule it out, ladies, don't rule it out if the, if the board recommends it. But Diane cut across him and said, "You may may happen. Um, it's uh, you know it's 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 all a game of chance, really, as to what the judge sees fit at the end when she has done her review." Not great investigations, as already as Dan has already said, but sure. Look, I mean, what what else can we do now? We can just sit back and watch now, and 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 hope, hope that that the that the policies and the procedures will be changed, and uh, because always our all, our our goal was always to protect the next eighteen year old male and female coming through the gates, that the protection procedures will be there, that the complaint system will have changed to enhance the ability to complain and to not end up being re-victimised and isolated and excluded and put into a room without a phone. Oh, she's, she's trouble, he's trouble, just leave her there and hopefully we'll, we'll destroy her mentally or, or him mentally so much that they'll just leave, they'll just leave. So in your view, both of you, um, is there still that culture, um, a misogynistic bullying culture in the Defence Forces? Yes, absolutely. We are aware of people at this very moment in very, very difficult situations um, being subjected to that. Um, but because they are, it, it, some may say few and far between, you know, and they're isolated from each other. Now, I don't believe it's quite as few and far between as people would believe, but a lot of people will accept because this is your livelihood. This is your entire career. You don't leave and go to a different army. You know, it's it's not as simple as changing jobs. It's it's a vocation nearly. So you don't go in here and say, OK, this isn't working out. I'll just go somewhere else. You know, this isn't worth it. This is your life and you've worked everywhere. You're never going to get to do something like this anywhere else. So people take a lot more than they should accept. And that was one of the reasons why I fought. I actually took my case through the courts afterwards, not so much for myself, but for the people who don't have the luxury to leave, because as well as that, you have to buy yourself out in a lot of instances. I was lucky I had my degree before I went in, so they didn't actually train me, but you have to pay them back in time or money for that. So if you're suffering, not only can you not defend yourself and not speak up because of the isolation and the bullying that you're subjected to, but then you can't get out. So people are, we know without a shadow of a doubt, we have people coming to us that are still serving and still suffering. 
Um, so absolutely, it's still there and it needs to change. So, you know, I know there's not maybe not much we can do about the review, but we're not going anywhere. Glad to hear that. And Karina, what about you? I mean, in terms of what, what do you think now? I was found an article actually um, from 2009 where a woman, uh, there's an unnamed article in the in the Irish Independent. And she says those days have gone. The army has one of the finest mechanisms in place of any of our public bodies to guard against bullying and harassment. I should know, seeing as I was one of the first to write of bullying and abuse in the ranks, those days have gone for good. And that was written in 2009, which uh, seems like it was somebody, maybe um, a very disillusioned woman in the army who didn't want, who had her blinkers on, I suppose. Um, yes, there's a, there's a few female officers that have blinkers on, all right, and a few male officers. Um, they're what we class as the, the golden boys and the golden girls. I, I'd ask I'd ask that girl that that female officer that that wrote that. How about going talking to to um to the girls that are talking to us right now, that are in the depths of of despair, that um a girl is going to uh, court within the next three weeks, um with a severe severe bullying case. How how about um talking to to her? How about saying you know oh oh I'm I'm sorry but you know. That, you know, the bottom line is it is still going on. It may be, as Diane said, not as not as prevalent as as it used to be when we were when I first joined, but unfortunately, it's still going on. And as Diane said, you can't leave. Even I know a lot of females that have transferred from the navy to the army to try and get away because they still, like me, still really love their careers, want want to uh, to to serve their country. Really, and really have great pride in having the Irish flag on their arm when they get on a plane to serve their country overseas. So, so they move from from the Air Corps to the Navy, or vice versa, from the Navy to the Air Corps. But still, still, their reputation follows them. They still can't get away from it, and it is, and it's still, still systemic throughout all three corps in the Defence Force. And Karina, just to finish, you're your, the end of your story, I suppose. You were you were rising through the ranks and you were up for a promotion, which you should have got, and it didn't go to you. Um, tell us about that final bit. Yeah, the final bit. That was um, my mission to to uh, to Chad, and this this was in two thousand and ten. I there there was three vacancies for for that Chad mission. Was in a support company, not not in the main group, not in the main battalion, and in two thousand and ten was advertised. Uh, a BQ, so my rank was CQMS, which is a company quartermaster sergeant. And one vacancy was a battalion quartermaster sergeant. So you go from from um, ruling, say, 200 to 300 men up to 1,000 men. So there was a BQ's vacancy and two CQ's vacancies. So I applied for a, a, as a CQ and to, to compete against the other to, uh, to get that BQ's vacancy. So when I applied, I I was accepted, but when I went in for the for the briefing to go over on that mission, I was told even though in front of the other two male CQs, said even though CQ Malone, you are the most senior senior CQ in the room, we are not giving you that BQ's vacancy, purely because you are a woman. Because Chad is, they use the excuse that Chad is a Muslim country. And that when you're dealing with the public, the the male uh, Muslim males won't take you seriously. So we're not giving it to you. So in actual fact, I got the most junior vacancy in that mission. 
and the most junior vacancy in that mission dealt with the public twice a, twice a week because we had to go and negotiate and pay bribes to get our post of the corrupt police in Chad. So I was working with the public every day. I was the most senior and I didn't get it because I was a yeah. woman. OK, I want to ask you both before you go. I just want you to tell our listeners what people need to be aware of and how how important this is, really, because, you know, we're hearing so much. Um, it's great because the hashtag military me, too. I know that was great for you guys. It was something that you could all go behind. And um, we're talking out now more. So why is this something that people need to keep an eye on and be very vigilant about and support you in, I suppose? For me, it's it's much bigger than the Defence Forces. This is throughout the entire country in uh, ac- across the state in particular, but across all, all aspects of it. You know, we can't accept this behaviour anymore. You know, people should be able to speak out, should be able to defend themselves, go through an appropriate system where this thing doesn't grow legs, you know, and, be, and become a circus act. So people have to to change their lives so that they can be treated correctly. Like we've had people reach out from all different aspects um, of society who have suffered in the ways that we're talking about. And enough is enough already. So, you know, we're asking people to stand out because if we can change the defence forces, one of the last archaic systems that are there, then it will filter down. If we can change it within this, it will change everywhere. And Karina? Um yeah, just on, on that point, um, with the Defence Forces and everybody reaching out to us, we've even had um, firewomen and police or uh, prison service females reaching out to us because they had nowhere else to go. So so it is across the board. And unfortunately, it's across the world as well because the, the Americans have, have finally seen sense and got a new bill passed in the Senate. The, the Canadians have finally seen sense and they've done really fantastic accountability. They've fired three of their chief of staffs within the last four years. And the British have also um, really got, got fantastic changes made. Not as much as they would like, but at least they, they've made a really, really good start. So it's across the world. OK, so um, hopefully, you know, you, you would like Ireland to be taking that lead as well and making really important and far reaching changes and taking it so seriously um, and like you say, compelling people. But that's not what this judge led review is going to do, unfortunately. And that's why you can't support it, I suppose. But they're saying they'll have a, a, a report in six months or something like that. So I suppose you'll wait and see what happens then. Yes, well, ho- hopefully, hopefully they'll they'll um, they'll give us a copy of it or they might have forgotten <laughs> about us at that stage. <laughs> Oh, they won't have forgotten about us at that stage, you can be sure, because we'll still be pushing. There's just too many people suffering for us not to keep pushing. Um, I don't have faith in, in the review because we've had these before and they've they've happened over and over. But there may be smaller benefits to this review. It's just not a risk that we're prepared to take that it will have the, the meaningful and the big change that's required. Karina, can I ask just finally if if none of that had happened to you and um, what you described, where do you think you would have ended up in terms of the at the top of your um uh career in the army? Like I suppose it's almost like if you were a man. <laughs> yeah. Um well ultimately um I, I would have ended up with a with a big pension, it was a BQ's pension instead of a CQ's pension. <laughs> Because because the fact that I didn't get to serve overseas as a, as an acting BQ that time, that had a dynamo effect in my career prospects. So 
I, I saw, I really saw the writing on the wall then because I was, I was a CQ then for 15 and a half years. And I thought that after 15 and a half years as a CQ and then plus my other service, I mean, I've 31 years done. I said, how much more can I take? And my, my, my mental health and my physical health were starting to, to go then. And I was coming up on my 55th birthday. So I decided, right, I've had enough. But I, if I, if nothing had happened to me, and if I'd got that BQ vacancy overseas, then yes, I would have retired as a BQ, which would have been great. Well, I just want to thank you both, um, not just for your service in the army, which I'm very grateful for, but also just for your service to women and men, and to, to in creating, trying to create a better society across all. The, like you said, Diane, it reaches across the tentacles or across every sector in in Ireland, wherever there are there is inequality, and we know that's everywhere. So. Thank you for raising your voices and fighting on in, in the true spirit of, you know, the soldier community. Um, it's great to have you on and uh, we hope you'll come back and talk to us more about it as this story progresses. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Thank, you, Thank you. That's all we have time for. Thanks to Diane Byrne and Karina Malloy. And do let us know what you thought about that conversation. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We're on Instagram or Twitter and we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.